Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Well, this morning I'd like to talk to the little lambs that were baptized and ask the question, what is faith? Because faith is a very important thing for us to understand when we begin growing with Jesus. We hear a lot of talk about faith, and yet so much is misunderstood about what it really is. It's the, one of the essential ingredients in the phrase righteousness by faith, isn't it? And so we need to give a very simple definition and one that can be experienced of what is faith. Because oftentimes New Testament faith is uh, almost a whole world in itself that has gone completely undiscovered. And righteousness by faith is also a realm of truth that's largely awaiting exploration. We are in a search this morning as far as faith is concerned, like The Spanish were in search for gold in the New World, or like those who today go searching in the bottom of the ocean for sunken treasure. We are in search of faith this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that you will open to us the beauty and the riches and the treasures of the faith which Jesus has to give to us. In his name we pray, amen. We have some curious notions about what faith is, And I think a lot of times we've taken over those ideas from preachers that we have seen on the media. Some time ago, back in the 80s, I believe it was, a a writer by the name of Marshall McLuhan warned about the electronic screen being so powerful that whoever appears on the electronic screen, no matter what they say, is credited as being truth. Uh, The phrase that Marshall McLuhan used was, the medium is the message. In other words, if somebody can get on television or radio or in print, then they must be believable. That's what he meant. And so we hear preachers and so forth tell us what faith is, but what does the Bible have to say about true faith? First of all, I'd like to share with you And the only way to get at this is maybe to outline what some of the misconceptions are and then go right for the Bible and what it has to say. One of the ideas that we have adopted from Babylon is that faith comes first and then it turns to love for God. You have to trust someone, after all, before you can ever fall in love with them. And sometimes this trust turns out to be One giant act of faith on your part. Maybe we've heard it described in that way. I committed myself, and I committed myself to an act of faith in God. And sometimes it's described this way by illustration. You come up to the edge of an escarpment with a deep drop-off, and uh, it would be crazy to jump off of it without a parachute. 
But now you overcome momentarily your skepticism, and you count up all of the reasons in your mind uh, why you believe in God and why you believe that Jesus can save you. And finally, you take, quote, the leap of faith. Have you ever heard that phrase, the leap of faith? Believing that you're going to fall into the arms of God. Well, there is more presumption in this idea than there is of genuine faith. I have to admit that my personal first initial immature way of thinking about faith in God as a teenager was this leap of faith, that I have to commit myself in an act of faith to God. In other words, I try to use my, what I did when I was in college, I was struggling with the whole idea of whether there was a God or whether there was salvation for me. And so I counted up all of the reasons rationally in my mind why God would ever have regard for me. And it was his presumption on my part. I said, I'm going to take the leap of faith. I jumped off the cliff, as it were. And on the basis of my own act of faith, I committed myself to God. Modern Protestant faith is a spiritual bank into which through a process of presumptuous infatuation, has just about lost all of its original value. And it has now become a note that is drawn on the bank of self. And that's the point that I'd like to make. That this idea that I had, I own up to this, that faith is a leap on my part, an act that I do, It was all centered in me and myself. And it was nothing more than presumption because of that. Salvation is much spoken of. It is advocated at the present day. But a lot of people say today, Protestantism as well as within our own church family, that they have committed themselves to an act of faith But genuine faith, as we saw it demonstrated in the early apostolic church, subjected them to some extreme reactions and responses, didn't it? Genuine faith subjected them to hatred, to persecution, or to admiration on the part of others who wanted to know what the secret was. An act of faith or a leap of faith idea does not produce any of that today. Any of that. Does that mean, then, that the offense of the cross has ceased? You know what the offense of the cross is? The message of the cross is crucifixion of self with Christ. So, for faith, there has to be no self in it. No, the offense of the cross has not ceased, not at all. But it will be found that very much of what is called faith is nothing but self-dependence, a dependence of human acts and of human righteousness, of the trust of one's own person in his own act of belief. The view that faith is an act of belief which affects some mystical change that I can affect upon God's attitude toward me is just about wholly bought into today. Well, another misconception that we have about faith is that we must trust God in order to have a relationship with him. 
we hear a lot of talk about a saving relationship with God, that that is all that counts. We think that this must be genuine faith. But the New Testament defines faith or believing. It doesn't define it as trust. The Greek words for faith and believing are elpizo and pytho. The word for faith is pistuo. Uh, the New Testament never defines faith as being trust. Why is that? Because the New Testament has a better definition of what faith is. Let me tell you, I have a saving relationship with AAA. I have been paying my car premiums now faithfully for the past 20 years, and I trust that they have promised that if there's an accident, that they will restore everything to me whole again before the accident. And as long as I do my part, I have a saving relationship with AAA. Or I have trust in my bank. You know why? Because it's called First Trust. Yes, that's the name of my bank, First Trust. And I've been doing business there for the past 20 years, and I like going there. And I have trust in that bank. There's been a lot of banks that have gone under, but First Trust is a little bank, and it hasn't gone under yet. There are, long, there are no long lines at First Trust. I know that when I walk in there, there are ca uh, friendly cashiers, and they actually know me by name. They'll call my name. And if I want to cash a check, they don't card me. They don't even ask for ID. They'll cash a check right on the spot. Now, one time I went in and I asked little Lenny in there, one of the cashiers, if I could have $13,000. And she says, do you want a cashier's check? And I said, no, I want it in $100 bills. And you know, presto, digital, digitalis, she went back in the back. She had to go into the vault to get 13, 131s. And then she says, we better go back in the secret room to count this out in front of you so nobody sees all of this money. And she counted out $131 bills. You're probably wondering what I used it for. I bought that car out there. You know, see, I never bought a new car. I bar, bought a car off of Craigslist <laughs> for $13,000. <laughs> I have a saving relationship in First Bank. First bank. Well, God's promises are not bargains or contracts that he makes with us. Salvation is not a contract whereby God says if we do our part, then he will do his part. All of these relationships that we have are the ways of the world, but God's covenant of salvation is his promise that in Christ he will forgive our sins and he will cleanse them. And he simply says, don't hinder that promise in your life, which is another way of saying, believe it. Don't hinder it. Another misconception that we have regarding faith is that if we don't believe in God, we will be destroyed. And uh, such self-preservation is what it means to be under the law. I don't want to be destroyed, and so I'm going to believe because of self-preservation. It's self-motivated. Do you see that? 
our greatest fear, which holds us in bondage, is the fear of death all of our lives. On the other hand, we are enticed to believe that if we do believe in God, then we can trade in our earthly real estate for a heavenly tract and property with an address on a street of gold. And the cornerstone of that motivation of faith rests upon our selfishness and our greediness and our desire for something better. Is that genuine faith? All three of these are misconceptions of faith, and they are driven with what the ancient Greeks called eros, which was self-love, reaching out for God. As we talk with various ones, we learn that most consider, well, pastor, we understand what faith is. We know all about righteousness by faith. We've been talking about it for years and years and years. We have no lack of understanding. The problem, you might ask that person, well, what is the problem then? Well, the problem is we just don't practice it. That's the answer that you'll get back. And therein lies the, the problem. Where is the humility of heart which will listen to Jesus, the true witness, who says in Revelation 3, verse 17, Thou sayest, I am rich. You know these words, don't you? I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing And knowest not, Jesus says, that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And the reason for our Laodicean lukewarmness is that we have such a robust conscience that we have a true understanding of what faith is. However, the true witness says in Revelation 3, verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me what? Gold tried in the fire. And you know what Jesus' understanding of gold is? It is faith and love. And that's just what we lack. In fact, Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 280, faith and love are the gold tried in the fire. Faith and love. They go together. Well, the Bible has a better definition of faith. See if you don't think so. Open your Bible to... John chapter 3 and verse 16. Oh, you say, I don't have to open my Bible to that text. I already know it by memory. You remember Nicodemus, who was a leader of the Jews? He thought he had faith. He thought he had God all figured out. When Jesus spoke these words to him, read it again and read it with new eyes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here is the true order of salvation, according to Jesus. God is love first. You see that? Before faith. God so loved the world that he gave. Love is first, isn't it? When we see that love in his giving his only son, that is what generates genuine belief and faith in him. So, any text, uh, only if you only write down one text, for our thoughts this morning, it's John 3.16. It tells us what genuine faith is. 
It's seeing and appreciating the love of God like we have never seen it before. And that, and if not hindered, then we respond in faith. So we have this very idea that's affirmed by the servant of the Lord. In uh, Review and Herald, June 4 of 1895, where Ellen White says, Our hearts are melted by contemplating his great love in giving us Jesus, his priceless gift. We receive Jesus as we appreciate the love of God. Love is first, and it generates faith. That's what it means to be born again. All birth is generated by love. I mean in the most ideal of situations. And including the rebirth experience of the Christian, it's generated by God's agape love. So we understand that faith is a gift of God, in, of his love. You know that Romans 12, verse 3 says that God hath dealt to every man a measure of faith. Isn't that wonderful? God has given to every person, Jesus, a message of his love, a capacity to not hinder that love in their life. So, friends, we would not dare to say that faith is our act or uh, some kind of a magic formula that self-creates out of nothing in order to impress God with our sincerity. That would be salvation by works. It's the love of God that creates faith. Or in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing. And hearing how? By the word of God. Faith comes by the word of God is who? Jesus. Faith comes by hearing about Jesus. The Holy Spirit ministers to everyone the word of Jesus. In fact, just turn over there to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2 for a moment, where they were following after a self-made gospel, the Galatians were. And so the apostle asked them to evaluate the track that they are going on. And he says, Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, in other words, from self, or by the hearing of faith? You know, the works of the law are all self-motivated. Genuine faith, genuine faith does not come from self, its source is the love of God. This is the hearing of faith. The servant of the, the servant of the, or let me just say, what is the hearing of faith? Paul presented, you're at Galatians 3 there? Look at verse 1. This is what the hearing of faith is in verse 1. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul presented, he proclaimed the message of the cross so clearly that those Galatians literally felt, it says, before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as what? That's how they receive faith. Paul proclaimed the cross of Jesus Christ to them, the message of the cross. This is how faith was imparted. It's by the principle of the cross. There is no self in it whatsoever. 
The servant of the Lord says again in uh, Review and Herald, July 24, 1888, you may say that you believe in Jesus. Oh, I would like to know what this is, wouldn't you? You may say that you believe in Jesus. When what? Are you interested? Are you curious what she has to say to complete that sentence? You may say that you believe in Jesus when you have an appreciation of the cost of salvation. You may make this claim that you believe when you feel that Jesus died for you on the cruel cross of Calvary. You see this? Love, the cross come first, and then faith. Amen? This is the order of inspiration. The cost of salvation, it involved Jesus being your sin-bearer and mine. It involved him voluntarily laying down his life on your behalf. It involves sensing the agonies which the wicked will suffer at the second death so that you never have to go through that. You, dear sinner. He chose to be separated. This is the cost for him. He chose to be separated from his eternal relationship with the Father forever. He surrendered the independent use of his divine powers over to the Father He did not have the hope of the resurrection. This is what it cost, your salvation. Now, if you can appreciate that, you can say that you have faith. When you can appreciate what it cost Jesus to die for you, then you can have faith. When you can say that you have put him through that, then you can say you have faith. By the way, all those things that I've mentioned there, the cost of salvation are in Desire of Ages, page 753. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. If you can appreciate that, then you can say that you have faith. Faith is a heart reconciliation to God. Faith is the atonement for you. It brings you into atonement with him. It's not some statement of a creed that you say, oh, yes, I believe that, now I can be baptized. Faith is a reconciliation of the heart to God that has been alienated, that is at enmity with God. That is the atonement for you. And so, this is no superficial connection with Jesus, is it? Not at all. No creedal statement that we just check off as some objective truth. This is a genuine reconciliation of your heart to the heart of Jesus himself, and it involves the crucifixion of self with Christ. It, is, it was self that put him on the cross. It is an appreciation of Jesus' love for you that is genuine faith. 
So to complete her statement, a human heart appreciation of the agape of Christ does not mean a merely human exercise. Faith is the gift of God, a measure of which Paul says is given to every man, but it is ours to exercise. We have the power to resist or to accept the light. If we accept it, of course, we do so by the enabling grace of Christ, God, but nonetheless, there is a human element involved, a choice. We are not Calvinists who believe in predestination. Somewhere in the plan of salvation, there's a place where a continental divide takes place. One sinner chooses to believe and another chooses to disbelieve. The point is this, that when the sinner chooses to believe to the saving of his soul, the true motivation involved is not self-centered, grasping for reward or fear-motivated attempt to escape from hell. He appreciates the dimensions of love revealed in the agape of the cross God so loved that he gave, and the sinner's part is to not hinder that. To respond, say amen. 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 The point is also well taken that the present biblical faith, we, we wish to present faith in a more biblical, authentic way than is the case with Babylon. Babylon teaches faith as centered in the self. The true scriptural teaching, it is not centered in the self. It is centered in the agape love of God and Christ. They always define faith as trust, which implies a self-centered, basically selfish, grasping for security and reward. This kind of faith can produce nothing more than lukewarmness or even apostasy. I believe genuine biblical faith is not self-centered in nature, but it's a heart appreciation of agape. The sinner responds not because he's afraid of hell or wants a reward in the New Jerusalem, but the love of Christ constraineth us, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. So many preachers and evangelists define faith precisely as do the Babylonians. Trust and fear or hope of reward. Almost the universal appeal to the words human heart appreciation are used because they contrast the divine revelation of love evoking a complementary human response, faith. But that response is never eros or even philos, friendship with God. In Paul's concept, faith is the proper human response to divine love. Paul spoke of the hearing of faith as an experience illustrated in the life of Abraham. When Abraham's heart was broken, he had a heartbroken experience of true faith. And the Bible says that it was counted to him for righteousness. But the righteousness that God could never count as righteousness is any grasping act of faith such as is often enjoined upon sinners by popular Protestant evangelists. With them, faith becomes a mere trust devoid of the heartbroken love and contrition and reconciliation of the heart, which can be aroused in human nature only by the proclamation of the truth of the cross. The trust is, this trust is emphasized to be as the sinner's own act of appropriation of this salvation. One thing is certain. Such salvation 
if it's genuine, will never derive from self. Aside, aside from certain sense of psychological adjustment, we get a lot of psychological sermons on the television and evangelical pulpits of how salvation has to do with the checklist. And if you'll just follow this checklist right down the line, well, you'll experience salvation. And all of it is self-centered and self-motivated and not centered in the principle of the cross. It's so, um, how shall we put it, it's so misunderstood and so subconscious that even the very elect can be deceived by it. Paul did not preach that the word of magic, occult faith, transforms what is black into white. Did, did he teach that this magic word causes God to count an unjust man as being just? Or in other words, does God justify the wicked? Well, Proverbs 17, 15 says, He that justifieth the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Such confusion is the direct result of omitting the truth of the atonement. Abraham was not accounted righteous when he was not righteous. His faith was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans 4, 3 and 5. His faith being, of course, he had a heart that was broken and contrite, just like David's heart was in Psalm 51. In other words, the melting love of the cross reconciled his alienated heart, and he experienced the atonement. And that faith was accounted as righteousness because Abraham was now open to Jesus to come in, and he was obedient to all of the commandments of God. Genuine faith is righteousness by faith. It isn't righteous or justification of the wicked. I was reading a story of, uh, in a book entitled Hidden in Plain Sight, written by author and pastor Mark Buchanan. He was writing about a woman who was named Regine. Regine originally came from Rwanda. Regine came to Christ while reading her sister's Bible during the genocide that ravaged her country. She finally escaped and she fled to Canada and found her husband Gordon, whom she married. They decided that they wanted to go back to Rwanda and to return to their people in order to share with them the love of God. Those people who had once been her enemies. Regine told Mark Buchanan a story of agape love. She told of a woman's only son being killed in the war. And this woman was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness over it. God, she prayed, reveal my son's killer. And one night she dreamed she was going to heaven. But there was a complication. In order to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. And she had to walk down the street and enter the house through the front door and go through its rooms and up the stairs and exit through the back door. And she asked God whose house this was. It's the house, he told her, of your son's killer. The road to heaven passed through the house of the enemy. Two nights later, there was a knock at her door. She opened it. There stood a young man. He was about her son's age. Yes, he hesitated. And then he said, I'm the one who killed your son. Since that day, I've had no life, no peace. So here I am. 
I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me, I'm dead already. Throw me in jail, I'm in prison already. Torture me, I'm already tormented. Do with me as you wish. The woman had prayed for this day when she could confront her son's killer. And now it had arrived, she didn't know what to do. And suddenly the cross of Jesus flashed in her mind. And she saw that Jesus died for his enemies, for her. And in that moment of reckoning, that love melted her heart. And she demonstrated it with true faith. She had wanted only one thing, and that was her son back. I ask this of you, she said. I ask you to come into my home and to dwell with me. Eat the food that I have prepared for my son. Wear the clothes that I would have made for my son. Be the son that I lost. And so he did. Love comes first, and then faith. It's the Bible way. It's the scriptural way. You can see that's how Peter did it on the sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He proclaimed the cross to the Jews, and he said, and you're the ones that murdered him. And what was their immediate response? Their hearts were convicted, and they said, what must we do? It's the same way that Paul proclaimed it with the Galatians. They received the Holy Spirit by the proclamation of the cross. By the way, that's how the latter rain will come. When the true preaching of the cross takes place, then the message, that message will be blessed by the Holy Spirit's latter rain and outpouring on his people. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.